0: Thank you for tuning in. Onboarding is a leadership issue with major business implications, whether we're growing organically or through M&A. And it's both a short and long-term investment that can pay major dividends individually and organizationally. I needed to step towards the tech world to bring you this great conversation with Kristen Gallagher, president and founder of Edify, and I think you'll be glad I did. First of all, Kristen is good, as well as thoughtful, thorough, and honest in her thinking and approach, Second, there's just so much commonality between the tech and AEC spaces in terms of talent management and development. Kristen is a learning design expert, and she walks us through what an ideal onboarding process looks like. Onboarding is not just about HR, and it's so much more than the new job orientation we've grown accustomed to. Throughout this episode, Kristen shares how to deliver the medicine in the applesauce, needed for better and faster results in terms of time to productivity and knowledge and talent retention. There's a lot to unpack in this episode, and Kristen also shares with us simple things we can begin to do today to improve our onboarding process and success. So without any further delay, let's do it.
1: The host of AEC Leadership Today is Pete Atherton, a professional engineer and former AEC principal and owner turned AEC coach and consultant. And now take a break from your never ending to-do list and welcome Peter Atherton.
0: Hello everyone and welcome to another great episode of AEC Leadership Today. Today we'll be speaking with Kristen Gallagher, founder, and CEO of Edify, and we'll be talking about all things onboarding. Welcome to the podcast, Kristen.
2: Thank you so much for having me, Peter.
0: Well, um, so listeners know we met online and I've become a fan over the last several months and was initially drawn to you as a result of your focus, which has um, in, in a large part being helping organizations onboard technical professionals. And in the space that I operate a lot in the um, AEC space, architecture, engineers, construction professionals, onboarding is being talked about more and more, and it's becoming a great thing for some organizations, and um, maybe just a newer buzzword in other organizations. I'm not trying to judge, I'm just saying it's being talked about, but maybe not a lot is understood or known about it. So... I'm really grateful that you are here today to talk about, you know, what onboarding means and really what it looks like, particularly in the tech space that you do a lot of your work in and from the perspective of innovation knowing that in some, you know, what's commonly done in some industries is really innovation for other industries and you know as we've talked about in the past there's so much common linkage between what happens in the tech world and what happens with Uh, in the AEC world because we're still dealing with technical professionals. And so with all that being said, uh, before we begin, can you share a little bit about you and your career and what brought you to doing what you do today?
2: Sure. Well, thank you so much for that really great introduction. So I founded Edify a little over five years ago. Um, And interestingly, uh, as you mentioned, the bulk of my work is building software engineering onboarding programs for technical companies. Um, but that is not what my background is actually in. I am a learning designer, um, but I come from the world of museums. So I worked in art museums, history, science, all of those kinds of places, uh, writing and building curriculum and um, trying to figure out ways for people to be engaged and to learn things outside of a traditional classroom. And when I decided to start Edify, um, I initially you know, went through lots of different iterations with learning design as many businesses do. Um, but realized that I could take my experience building curriculum and learning experiences outside of a classroom and apply those really cleanly and and innovatively in a corporate environment because people don't want to be in a classroom anyway. Um, And oftentimes the pace of work doesn't allow for that anyway. Um, And so that's a little bit about me and my background. Um, I can't even begin to imagine that Edify is as old as it is. Um, So I'm really excited to kind of go on to the next five years.
0: And so what got you into what you were doing, but to work with, say, corporate clients? I mean, what was that transition to go from what you were doing to, okay, now there is this thing called Edify and I'm working with corporate clients?
2: Yeah, it was kind of an interesting uh, leapfrog kind of thing. So I was doing museum education uh, and then I, I went into nonprofit education program design and program management. Um, from there, I started working for a web development company. So that was my first kind of for-profit job uh, in the in the for-profit industry and was actually doing sales and, and uh, you know, proposals and those sorts of things and a little bit of marketing and realized that a lot of our customers didn't really understand um, how to work with us, right? How to assess... Um, what their website needs were, what their technology needs were. And so I ended up creating a bunch of education for our potential clients as a sales tool. And that got me kind of really excited about the idea of porting learning design over into corporate environments and into a business world. And um, I jokingly tell people that that job was a a great job, but it was a horrible, very toxic work environment. And my choices that I gave myself were, you know, you can go waitress, uh, you could jump off a bridge or you could start a business. And I don't like waitressing. I'm not very good at it. I really liked my life. And so I figured the business was the only other option. So that's kind of the transition from museum education to um, corporate and and technology, uh, you know, onboarding.
0: Right, well, it's interesting. I mean, just in general, you know, coming from the the space of museums or nonprofit work and trying to encourage people educate and sell something without the power is hard. And so it's actually in a corporate environment, there's hierarchies and people. it's, you know, their job might be dependent on it or job is improved by doing it. So you actually get more compliance. So it's interesting, you can actually, it's, it's harder to develop the skills in the nonprofit space to be effective than it is sometimes in the corporate space. So it's interesting that, you know, that transition. Um, But what I mean, so let's maybe get down into the topic of onboarding but what is it like how would you describe it or define it
2: it's a great question It's one of my favorite questions actually so i think people don't always understand what onboarding is and something you've probably heard of is orientation and most companies have some sort of orientation right that's your you know welcome to the company you might have gotten an email or a letter um, in the mail it's your kind of HR stuff, right? Your paperwork, making sure you get signed up for benefits and payroll, all of that stuff. Um, But onboarding really starts, well, I would argue onboarding starts the moment that somebody applies to a job, but that's probably another conversation for later. But um, we can, for the purposes of this conversation, think about onboarding as encompassing orientation, but also going into your actual jobs, the function of someone's job. So I like to think about onboarding as a three layer cake. So there's a corporate layer at the top a departmental layer in the middle and a team layer at the bottom. So you and I might both be joining the same company on the same day, but if we're in different departments and we have different jobs or even in the same department, but we have different jobs, we're going to get a different slice of cake, even though our corporate onboarding is going to be the same. So I think for me onboarding is really about making sure that the person who is joining the company, has the skills and the resources and the connections they need to actually get up to speed quickly enough to, to be productive.
0: Right. So, I mean, it comes in from the front door, of the corporate, but then also, you know, down through the division and the desk you're sitting at with the manager. I mean, so, I mean, you talked about, I mean, I remember the traditional orientation day and you wait around in HR for four hours and you figure out a few things and then maybe you go out to lunch with someone and then at the end of the day, you're at your desk and well, tomorrow when you come in, we'll figure out what you do. I, I mean, that's maybe being too facetious, but um, no, that's,
2: so. that's the irony. <laughs> it. you know, this is, that's really how most people are still onboarded today, even though it's, you know, now I get to say it's
0: 2020. So, I mean, so maybe if you could just briefly walk us through that process, I mean, what, What would that process look like ideally um, with a technical professional who comes in and saying, I'm excited, I'm proficient in this, and I can't wait to work on my projects and do really neat things. I mean, how how do you sort of take that person and um, what do you want to do with them?
2: Yeah. In the simplest terms, ideally, your onboarding program is at least a 90-day plan for a new hire. Um, and that's really just to get them up to speed and to give them the tools and skills that they need. And so the way to think about how to actually build that 90-day plan is in four different sort of categories, if you will. Because, again, the corporate onboarding, that's, that is important. And that's where you're going to learn about the culture of the environment that you're working in, you know, the history of the company, all of those good things. That's, that is important. But what's more important is that division or the department and the, the team layer where that's the meat and potatoes of what they're actually gonna be doing with their job and and the eight hours that they spend with you at this company. So the way to think about that is four different categories of information. And if you can answer as many questions as you possibly can in each of these four categories, you'll give your new hire a a better chance at becoming productive and becoming a, a happy and healthy member of your team. So those four categories are Professional expectations, which is culture and communication, how we work together, um, tooling or technology. It depends on you know the type of business that you're in. You might call it something different, but that's the the way that we do our our work through different software systems or through different tools. Um, then your third category is process. So how do we do our work? Who do I have to talk to? Where where do I go to do this work, etc. Um, And our last category is product. And so again, depending on the type of business that you're in, maybe you don't sell a product per se, but you sell services. But you do sell something and every person at your business, regardless of what department or what team they're in, needs to really understand how they interact with the thing that you sell, right? Whether it's services or um, consulting or a product or a widget or a piece of software.
0: Right. So that, I mean, it sounds like you've got to extract a lot of information from people with, you know, throughout the organization through those three layers, at least, to be able to have that system in place to onboard. But before we, you know, I I guess that one of the first questions I have thinking about that is, Thinking about the the misunderstandings about onboarding, we talked about the traditional orientation. Is there anything else that people just don't understand, other than the it, it's multiple layers involved and it's a process that takes you know ideally three months to produce versus that one day? Are, are there any just common misunderstandings people have when you work with leaders about oh I didn't understand that that was part of a successful onboarding program?
2: Yeah, there, there's a couple that come to mind. I think one is actually. Uh, expecting that your HR team be responsible for your departmental or your your role-specific onboarding. And that's not really fair to the HR team. That's not the work that they do. They should be responsible for that corporate onboarding, most likely. Um, But they're not going to know the ins and outs of your department or your team. Um, And so just pushing it off as HR's job is not going to be... Um, useful for you or for your new hire and it's going to kind of erode your relationship with your HR team. So that's one kind of misunderstanding I think that people have. Um, And another one I think is that they expect that, you know, the manager has hired this person and the manager is just going to know exactly the kind of project or things that the new hire needs to know. And the reality of most situations um, that I find after five years of doing this kind of work is that number one, most managers don't get very good manager training in the first place, and that makes them not necessarily um, kind of teed up to know how to properly onboard somebody in the first place. Um, so in addition to not getting the right training, they're, they're overworked, right? We ask a lot of our managers, sometimes they're managing four to five, seven people. I've worked with managers who are managing 12 people, and it's pretty impossible to ask them to um, create an onboarding program for each individual Um, especially when they don't have the skills or the knowledge to do that in the first place. So I think that those are some misconceptions or some mistakes that people make. Um, Certainly, your managers have a very important part in onboarding, but it's really about providing them with the right tools so that they can then um, onboard somebody in an efficient, effective way that doesn't waste their time and the team's time.
0: And I mean, I can already see how it's In order to be effective, it really does affect a lot of aspects, but it almost seems like when you're building an effective onboarding program, there's actually a little bit of organizational development and management training that goes into that. And probably at every layer of the cake, there's some type of training to rethink or reframe what we're doing so that we can teach others and inspire and encourage along their path. And, and so there is this sort of subtle organizational development work in the process.
2: Yeah, I think so. And I I sometimes use the phrase medicine in the applesauce. You know, your mom used to put, you know, your ground up Benadryl or whatever in your applesauce. And that's because a lot of leaders um, kind of shy away from the words process or organizational design or organizational development because it feels um, like something that they don't necessarily know how to do or um, that feels like superfluous or they're gonna sit in a you know two-day offsite and just talk about their feelings. And that's not necessarily what organizational design is or should be. Um, and when we talk about organizational design as it's related to onboarding, what we're really thinking about is the way that your team is structured and the way that they interact and the, the sort of tacit rules by which you do your work, right? And so thinking about how your managers are actually tasked to organize work and to to put projects out and and actually finish a project um, will help you think about how to properly onboard somebody and it's a virtuous cycle, right? So if you invest time in properly onboarding someone, they add back to the team a lot faster, making the manager's life easier so the manager can add more value to the projects.
0: Right. And the, I mean, the opposite approach is you could just throw them into the fire, have them figure it out, which number one takes time and risk. And so, I mean, maybe that's a good segue into, okay, we're doing this. It makes sense on so many levels, but what what's the financial level? I mean, what what are the costs to teams and organizations if they have a poor or a non-existent onboarding programs? And are there specific elements or metrics that you look at
2: completely yeah i'm really glad you asked that question um there's a couple of different categories that you can start looking at um in order to figure out what metrics matter to your business and i would argue all three of these matter to businesses but depending on the the rate of change or the growth in your business you might want to focus on one over the other the first one that comes to mind for me is retention and attrition so those are two different words that definitely mean different things but they're often um confused or, or lumped in together. So your retention is how much are you, you know, how many people are you keeping in your company? And those are people that you want to retain. They are good A players. Um, they're people that are adding uh, a lot to your culture. They're adding to the value of your business and the value of your products. Um, so that's retention. Attrition is when you lose those people. Um, and you can, there's a different types of attrition as well. There's non-functional and functional attrition. So functional attrition would be we've actually churned out people who were not good fits in this, this company or this team. And onboarding can actually serve that purpose. So it's not necessarily um, you know a goal that you should shoot for to have zero percent attrition because there might be times when you know the hiring process you know went as well as it could have, but we didn't hire the right person for any particular set of reasons. Um, and we want onboarding to happen in such a way that they opt out or that we both opt out of this relationship faster because if we keep them longer, uh, we're just basically paying in salary for somebody that's not going to add value back to the business, right? So onboarding can serve that purpose in a positive way. And then the third metric that I think is important to look at is time to productivity. So how long does it take a person in a particular job or a particular department To get to a place where you can take the training wheels off, basically. So they can do their work on their own without kind of constantly nagging or constantly asking questions. Um, Not that a new hire is trying to nag or trying to ask stupid questions, but they don't necessarily have the scaffolding they need if they don't have the onboarding program. So most of the companies I work with have never tracked their time to productivity, because it's a complex thing to track. What you're really looking at is the the metrics that are important to their particular job. So it could be, um, you know, how many things they are, how many parts of a project they're shipping every week. Um, It could be a different metric that's very specific to their role. Um, So for example, I know the metrics for my software engineering teams, but that's going to be very different than in the AEC space. So your attrition, your retention, and your time to productivity all really matter. And um, the, the cost of not having an onboarding program is, it's basically saying, we're going to keep things at the status quo, we're not going to invest in this way, generally is that your time to productivity will stagnate, right? So it will, it won't get better, but it won't necessarily take longer. And I'm going to guess that most of the people listening that your companies probably have a nine to a 12 month time to productivity rate. Um, So it takes about a year for somebody to get kind of on their own and not being you know, using uh, resources outside of their own job in order to, to get to productivity. Um, so, so that, I think, is, is something to really pay attention to. And they, the attrition and retention costs are even bigger than your time to productivity costs, right? Because it's pretty expensive to go through the hiring process and then find out that you either hired the wrong person and you kept them too long, Or you hired the right person, but they didn't find a fit within your company because they couldn't access the information or they couldn't really build um, a a place for themselves in in a successful way. And then you lose them at 12 to 18 months. So again, it's it's the same situation. You paid in salary to someone who's no longer going to be adding value to your team.
0: Right. And in the AEC space, I mean, time to productivity is, I mean, it's six to 12 months, I mean, it, it depends kind of on the level of talent brought into the organization. I mean, some people could be quicker, but you still have to understand the norms and the customs and all those four elements that you thought of. And again, if, if it's a, a succinct process, it will be a lot quicker and, you know, utilization rates benefit. And even if someone's charging a project, I mean, the the actual project gets done and you have better profit and loss because, you know, not only was the the time utilized, but it was utilized well. So that's a major component. I mean, and one thing you brought up, I mean, it is firms are investing a lot in the recruiting pipeline. And I, I agree, it's a whole different discussion to sort of extend the onboarding into the recruiting phase, but it's certainly a valid discussion. But one thing that came out in one of our past discussions, was that from a technical person, a lot of times they 're comfortable in place a and then you through great recruiting or great culture or whatever, you bring them here to your company and what are some of the risks and vulnerabilities if you don't or onboard them well because i what I recall is that you know statistically, once you get a technical person to move it 's so hard to get them to move, but once they move once it 's so much easier for them to move a second time if the conditions aren 't right and so you're particularly vulnerable, Did, am I overstating that or understating that, or could you say it more eloquently?
2: Yeah, no, no, I don't think you're overstating it or understating it, actually, I think it is it is a big problem. So um, to recap there, it, it is, um, for folks who have a, a job that is a technical in nature, they're a software engineer, an architect, and a different type of engineer, um, They they don't really want to deal with the friction of joining a new team, right? Um, This is a broad generalization, but a lot of the folks I work with are introverted, right? And once they're comfortable with the culture and the norms of that team and the way that they do their work, it's a pretty big, you know, um, area of friction for them to have to change. So things have to be pretty bad in their eyes from a culture standpoint or a managerial standpoint for them to want to leave. So once they do leave and then let's say they spend six months at your organization and it does, it's not going well, right? Let's imagine that they're not accessing the information or they can't find it or they have to keep asking you um, or they're, they're just not sort of meshing with the culture because they don't know what the expectations are. And they're feeling anxiety. They're feeling frustration. The team is probably feeling anxiety and frustration. Um, it's much easier for them to say, you know what? I, I did this again you know, six months ago. I can just do it again. I'm going to go interview. I'm going to get a different job, right? Um, when that person really could have been a great addition to your team. um, And you spend a lot of time and money recruiting them, right? Um, Because it's so hard to get them to come out. So if you have actually invested in recruiting someone away, they weren't necessarily a cold applicant, that cost of, of hiring that person is actually going to be much higher than if they were just a cold applicant to you, right? So if you're already investing money in recruiting, then you need to be investing time and effort into onboarding in order to retain uh, the value that you're that you're spending on that recruiting.
0: Right, and be able to get a return on that. And so if I'm a leader looking at this saying, ah, we don't need OD work and that sounds, it's no, this is return on investment and this is not guaranteeing anything, but it's making it more likely that you will be able to do this. And oh, by the way, we are educating everyone in this process and probably reminding everyone how great this organization is and what we do and why we do it. And every once in a while, we need to be reminded of that. So there's all these good things that are attributed to that. Um, but again, it's also dollars and cents. What and I know you in your process you focus on you know the the experience of the candidate, and and I think there's obviously the, a good movement to think about the client experience, employee experience, and all that stuff. But um, what? and it sort of gets to a new employee comes in whether they've rest rest out fresh out of school or 10 years or 30 years in the business i mean what types of fears and anxieties are out there that we normally don't think about you know hey you should be excited to come here you signed the contract you're coming in and it's all good but underneath the surface what are some of those fears and anxieties that we really need to be cognizant of for any new employee coming into any new organization
2: yeah i think that's a great question You know and and they run the gamut from like the sort of entertaining one like for example on day one are you gonna bring me lunch am i gonna go out to eat should i bring my own lunch in a lunchbox if i bring my own lunch in a lunchbox do i put it in the refrigerator i know that sounds really silly but actually it produces a lot of anxiety for people it's almost like your first day of school in middle school right it's like well i don't really know these people who am i going to sit with am i going to just sit at my desk and eat Um, You don't know the customs and the culture and and this, you know, calls back something I wanted to mention again based on our earlier conversation is You know, when we say things like norms and culture and communication that can sound really squishy and really sort of Not that important, right? We we do the work and the work is really important But the work happens in the context of this culture stuff right in the norms and culture is really about how we interact with one another, right? So as an example some companies you know don't eat lunch at their desks that is part of their culture part of their norm so if you have a new hire who's coming in and hasn't been sort of let you know in on the secret then they're going to feel a they're going to feel really awkward and, and uncomfortable which doesn't produce literally neurologically doesn't produce a good environment for them to be learning and to to be adding value to your organization and then b they're gonna sort of upset the ecosystem in the organization itself, right? So you have a push and a pull. It's not just that the new hire is coming in um, and that you need to provide you know, tools and resources, it's that they are coming into an existing team and that team is gonna change based on the person that, that is joining the team, right? So you mentioned this earlier, you know, let's say somebody's comfortable at place A and they come over to your team at place B, they're actually gonna port in a, either on purpose or inadvertently, they're going to port and tr- and and kind of um, infuse into your team things that worked well for them in their last team, right? And so let's say you hire somebody from you know company A, and you don't think much about the culture of company A, but the way that company A works maybe is at odds with your value system and in company in your company, right? So if you don't make it very clear to the new hire, this is our value system and this is how we prize work and prioritize. Um, you know, integrity, or or whatever value structure you have, they're not going to know, right? So they're going to do again, what worked well for them in the past, they'll try to port it over to your team. And that may not work well, because all of those things that you have kind of figured out and that everybody who quote knows the ropes or learns the ropes at some point, um, they have that in their mind. And it's kind of second nature to them. It's in their gut, your new hire doesn't have any of that. So when we say this stuff is tacit, it means it's not written down anywhere, it's in our heads. Um, And this is the stuff that really makes people uncomfortable. Um, It's also the stuff that ends up leading to you firing a person or somebody leaving uh, prematurely, right? Because this is, it's really about how we interact. Again, the technical stuff we can all learn. People, you can look at a bunch of different candidates and they'll all have the same resume effectively, right? So it's really about the culture and the way that they are going to interact with your team and the way that your team is gonna interact with them.
0: Right. And I like the way that your process allows that to come out to the surface to be not only talked about, but documented so it could be shared and, and even, you know, formalized in, in the appropriate ways. But so, I mean, we've been talking about kind of the one offs, like new employees coming in or a cohort coming in. I know you do work with mergers and acquisitions too. You know, like a company gets bought out or, you know, there's, there's some sort of an acquisition and new teams are melding. Can you share about, you know, you know we can maybe start with the fears and anxieties? I mean, what, what if, if a team or your work in M&A, but then, it's, it, you know, talk about some of the fears and anxieties that are on a team level, not just an individual, that you work through with an effective onboarding program.
2: Yeah. So, mergers, whether it's a merger or an acquisition, You know, there's always going to be at least two parties, right? There's going to be what I would call a high power party and a low power party. And it's likely that you don't have to tell anyone on either side of the table who's the high power and who's the low power, right? As much as, you know, often in mergers, this is the case, we try to communicate that this is a merger of equals. Um, That's usually not the case, right? Somebody's IT systems are going to win out, somebody's billing system is going to win out, somebody's way of doing business or way of doing sales is always going to win out. And what that means is that um, the employees that you already have, not just new hires, but the employees that you have from those two groups, you know, company A, company B, they have their own cultures, they have their own systems and rules and ways of working. And they're going to start to feel this kind of like, quote, in the water experience, something's in, in the water, it's a little weird. And they're going to start to have a little bit of anxiety if you're not clear with them about what the new expectations are, right? And those new expectations are, these are the new value systems that we are gonna live by and work by. This is how we're gonna sell projects. This is how we're going to perform projects. This is how we're gonna build. This is how we're gonna do all of the ways of working that maybe were different when we were just company A and not company AB, right? So effectively in a merger or an acquisition, you need to re-onboard every single one of your employees. Now you don't need to necessarily create a whole new onboarding program that's separate from your new hire onboarding program. But you need to bring some some ideas and some clarity to what the purpose of the merger was, what the purpose of the acquisition was, um, and how you wanna to communicate to people. Because again, you're gonna lose, this is a place where people, you know, companies use, lose a lot of people as a merger or, or an acquisition because of that instability, that anxiety, discomfort, that I don't know how I'm going to be assessed anymore And if I'm doing something that worked for me in the old culture, right, in company A or in company B, but now in company AB, I don't know if that's going to be successful for me. So I don't want to get sacked, you know, if if I'm not doing the right thing, right? So you've got to be really clear with people and onboarding is basically the only way to do that.
0: Right. And there's a lot to unpack in that. I mean, that's almost the whole episode in and of itself. But I mean, it, it does get back to, I mean, so of a mindset shift, we had a merger and acquisition, both parties are affected and both parties need to have some type of onboarding because the it's now company AB. But that requires a whole lot of clarity on leadership and decisions. This is, or, you know, this is set, this is still a work in progress. So, but clarity on what's set and what's not. You deal a lot with technical professionals, uh, you know, people who are technically proficient at engineering or software development, and then they become a manager and a leader. And that's what the market And So how do you take that into account in trying to extract that clarity so that when teams come together, again, there's not just the investment on bringing in an individual, there's a pretty big merger and acquisition cost that went, you know, with a sale. And so how do you, you know, in returning that, in making sure there's a return on that investment, how do you work with leaders to sort of get to the place where we can have clarity and then work through a process?
2: Yeah. You bring up a really good point. I think we make a lot of assumptions that when we promote someone into management um, because they are really good at their technical job, um, that they're gonna be a great manager, right? And that's not necessarily a, a fair or a true assumption to make and often is, you know, proven out that it's it's not actually always in that technical person's wheelhouse to be a good manager. But you know, the, the value of even stating that is to to draw a comparison, right? A good manager is going to have an intuition and a skill set around communicating. Um, complex and nuanced and uncomfortable things, right? And and part of business is you know VUCA, right? Volatility, uncertainty, chaos, ambiguity, but not everybody handles that very well, right? In fact, most of the folks that I work with, technical on all sorts of levels, don't actually like that very much. They want clear answers. They want a math problem that that that, that you know ends up in a number that can be made sense of, right? Um, and mergers and acquisitions aren't like that, right, or rebranding, or any sort of big system-wide, if you will, change, Um, there's not really just one math formula that's going to prove out, um, you know, in a black and white answer, and so your management, your leadership needs to be able to explain, you know, this isn't fully baked yet, and it's going to take us probably three years to fully bake it, and so here's what I can promise you in the meantime, here's what I can kind of hope for in the short term, here's what I really hope for in the long term, and here's how I want you to work with me, and here's you know, the trust that I'm asking you to place in me. right? And when you come to employees with that kind of uh, communication style and mindset, um, they're gonna be a lot more likely to forgive some of that uncomfortable um, ambiguity and, and things that change. right? I've worked with organizations that, as an example, shifted their performance management structure three times in one year. Just because of that acquisition. They went to the new company's version, you know, or to the, the, what I'll say, the high power company's version, and then they decided they didn't like that. They're going to go back to the old company, and now they're going to have a hybrid of the two, right? Now, how do you think that makes that employee set feel, right? That, wow, you have just shifted the way that I'm going to get paid and assessed three times in less than 12 months. That's, that's pretty nerve-wracking, right? Like, I have a family. I have to feed myself. I have to Kind of figure out my future, right? And that that kind of thing is going to bleed over into their work product and their work quality, right? So you really need to think about when you're going through these kinds of big system-wide changes, how are you empowering your management to explain it with as much clarity and as much transparency as as, as, as possible?
0: Right. And how who hires you? I mean, th- this is great leadership stuff. I mean, are, are you hired by leaders? Are you hired by HR? I mean, how do you get brought in and when is it because they're, you know, methodically planning this future thing or is it a crisis?
2: Um, it's usually a crisis. <laughs> usually not that we, you know, it's like, Oh, in three months or three, three years, we think we're going to have this you know situation happen. Unfortunately, that's not how it works. Um, but to answer your first question, so normally um, you know, my client is a, a VP or a director of engineering. Um, on a rare occasion it is hr um, sometimes i'll do a corporate onboarding program and an engineering onboarding program so that they mesh well together um, sometimes we'll do other assorted you know, organizational development projects alongside that um, but it's usually somebody who can see i like to describe it as a person who sees the forest through the trees right that you know you can see that onboarding has a role to play both in You know recruiting and retaining the value from recruiting um but also in in long-term business strategy that you can leverage onboarding as a way to make more money in your business or be more efficient and effective in the business
0: right and you know a lot of firm not a lot i mean there's a there's a subset of firms whose growth strategy is mergers and acquisitions so i mean to be able to do it right um even the first time and the second time, and then have a prototype? I mean, firms can probably do it on their own once they understand and have that skill set in place. But I mean, other than, you know, all those metrics, the KPIs on an individual level that we talked about, you know, obviously magnified on a team level, are there any other benefits to firms saying we're going to merge or acquire um, or we're going to hire 20 different types of people this year, or, or 50 different people. It, what are the some of the other benefits to sort of outside of a crisis, bringing someone like you in to be able to sort of coordinate this onboarding program?
2: Yeah, that's a, a really good question, too. I think that um, when you are in growth mode, so I'll, I'm actually thinking of a current client right now. So everything is going well. And um, this is kind of, like I said, the rarity of of cases for me, but things are going well. The company is really profitable. Um, growth is on the up and up. They're growing, you know, twenty five percent year over year. On from a people perspective, you know, headcount. But they are—they've started to realize, wow, we have outgrown the structures where we could have just talked to one another, or we could just call somebody up, or we could just walk to their desk, right? And that's fine, right? When you're a small organization and you have a familial culture, right, where you can just talk to each other. But as your, your company starts to get more globalized or more remote, um, you might be thinking about kind of future of work type of things. So how are you going to manage costs while, you know, also keeping your quality and your, your culture together. If you're starting to think about things like that, or you're starting to kind of burst at the seams a little bit and you're realizing that the ball is getting dropped in this small place or that small place, um, then it might be time to start thinking about an onboarding process. The other thing that i tell people is that onboarding is not just valuable for the new hires who are going to come in part of you know the the sort of unfortunate nature of running a business is that the management of the knowledge and the information is always really complex so you might be using google drive or you might be using sharepoint or jive or confluence whatever place you're putting all of your information I would put money on the table that it's not well organized, right? I've worked with 30,000 person companies and three person companies, and it's never well organized, right? And so what that really means is that even your current team is probably struggling to figure out where to put stuff and where to find stuff, right? So when you do an onboarding process, it kind of pulls up the most important things, and that helps the existing team too, right? So you're getting a benefit, not just for your new hires, but also for your existing team.
0: And again, that it sounds like it's a little bit of the um, the medicine and the applesauce from an organizational development. And and is that when when you talk about you know it's not just onboarding. I mean, another way to frame it is it's it's knowledge retention. Mm
2: -hmm. You know, is that
0: kind of what you're talking about in that sense?
2: Knowledge retention, yeah. And this is you know we get into other other OD organizational development and design kind of questions like succession planning, right? We Um, know that people are not gonna stay at our firms for 10, 15 years anymore, right? It's it's just not the way that, um, you know, employment data is looking right now, and hasn't been for quite some time. And so we have to face the reality that people are going to leave. And if we don't help them document and help them with a scaffolding and a framework for where they put the knowledge that they acquire and they gather, then when they walk out of your organization for the last time, they take all of that value with them, all of that intellectual property. That's, that's basically, you know, however long they worked for you times their salary, like walking out the door again, right? And so we have to provide a structure and a scaffold for managing that information. And it's not to basically download their brain, but what are the most important things? What are the processes that they're, you know, uh, that they're the owner of, or that they have a key part in? How do we communicate that to the next layer of people? Right. so that's your succession
0: planning right and at least retain more than 10 percent of what they had in their brain and how they thought i mean you know yeah. and, and increase that to maybe 95 like in, know you know i mean you would never they're walking out the door and if that's they're good right. Uh, right but i mean let's retain more than zero yes. um, and be able to do it what do you think i mean there's so much value that we're talking about today what do you think is holding leaders and leadership teams back from saying, you know what, let's really dive in and develop an onboarding program?
2: Yeah, I think there's two things. One is it is time consuming, right? If you don't have somebody um, to guide you through the process, uh, it's going to be the thing that's on your to-do list and will keep getting knocked on a rung because there are more important pressing things, right? I never lie to people and I will always be upfront. Onboarding is not um, a a revenue generator. It is an indirect revenue generator, if you will. Um, But it's going to go in your cost center, you know, wherever you're going to pull that money from for whether it's investing in a consultant or just investing time, you know, that's not billable time. It's, It's going to be indirectly related to your revenue because it has to funnel through all of your people costs, right? So I think that's one problem is it's going to get, you know, overtaken by other tasks that are, that seem to be more important, right? And humans are all like this, right? Like we don't floss because it's irritating, even though long-term flossing is good for us, right? So you can think of tons of examples like that. So I think that's reason number one. Um, Reason number two is I think that people have the perception that they have to, it's a big expense to do on the front end of something that feels like it's too far away to understand the, the long-term impact of, right? And I'll, I'll give you that too, right? It does take time to understand what the impact's gonna be. Um, the quickest that you're gonna see an impact though is probably within two to three months after even starting building an onboarding project because your current team, even if you haven't put new hires through it, your current team is gonna start to get clarity about the processes. And you might even have an opportunity to make uh, that the team that's currently working with you more aware of how things work at this company and make things run even more smoothly. So you, you might start to see value really quickly, but it's, again, it's not like, you know, putting one quarter in and getting two quarters out very quickly. Right.
0: Right. Well, I mean, you know, an investment by its very nature, I mean, that's an investment that takes time to deliver its value. I mean, that's the difference between a leader and a manager. I mean, a manager is going to say, no, I can't do it. That's an expense. It's going to take away from my urgent needs, but the leader says, no, it's worth it. And it might be worth it tomorrow in three months or certainly two years from now. And we're going to make that investment because that makes us better for all the reasons we're talking about. We're going to start doing what we should do, not just what we have to do in the urgent matter. So, and then, you know, if, if we're losing people and not retaining people, we're, we're able to recruit someone, but then they leave or, we have an M&A that goes poorly, but then our strategy is more m and mean, I mean, that, that, all of a sudden that is a must do. And that's probably people could at that point and then call you in crisis. So it is, it's a matter of, you know, that's leadership too, figuring out in the moment what we need, but ideally it's, it's something that's done ahead of time. And I mean, it kind of gets to, you know, I know a lot of the firms and leaders that i I talk to and, and work with, and that you probably see in the tech space. I mean, these are very smart people and leaders and they can figure it out, yeah. but at what, at what expense of their brain power and what they could be doing and it gets into highest and best use. And, you know, could you hire a consultant to get, you know, this up and going, you know, version one and version two and then, but part of that be educating your team to be able to take it forward that way or, this is actually something that's more cost effective to outsource but you can figure that piece out um, if you're looking at the value of it and it, but I think it's hard for very smart technical professionals to stray away from do it yourself
2: I think so too right and I'm like that even in my in, in my own life right like I, I think, well, you know what? I don't like my chimney anymore. I'm just gonna take it down. Well, turns out when I get up on the roof, I don't actually know how to take a chimney down, right? And it's a little bit more complicated than you know it, it might seem, right? Because then you have a giant hole in your roof, right? So might as well just hire someone who's gonna do it faster and better and make sure that there's no hole in my roof, right? So that I, I tell people when, when we start client projects with them, you are brilliant, you're smart. You don't really need me, but, Lo and behold, for the last X number of years, you haven't been onboarding people well, right? Because we're here, right? And so let me help you or let whomever you're hiring help you or let whoever is the internal kind of supporter of onboarding take the time, give them the air cover to do that because it is about a different way of thinking, right? I gave you those four categories and there's a bunch of mental models that we use to to do really good technical onboarding, right? Starting with that cake model, right? Even just divvying up what is HR's job to do in onboarding and what's our job, right? That's a whole day long conversation in and of itself, right? And the more and more you socialize this kind of stuff, the easier it will become. But it gets a lot easier if you have somebody who can help you and just speed you through the process, right? Who doesn't have to help you, uh, or you know, so that you don't have to build your own mental models. Why don't you use templates and tools that already exist out there, right? So whether that is you know leveraging somebody who's in your organization today who can who has a little bit of free time or isn't on a billable project and is showing an interest and an aptitude for doing this. Um, you know, or, or investing in somebody from, you know, outside the company to support you
0: on that. All right. And this, it seems like there'd be less, I don't know, how do you say this political friction or, um, you know, power struggles with, with someone just internally saying, we're going to do this now. I, it it it's, it's almost like, not only is what you're talking about sort of a true partner and a valuable consultant, but it also sort of takes away from some of the in an organizational change situation, the and I guess maybe there's a better way to say it, but the, but that friction um, that comes from somebody else doing something different and telling someone to do something that they normally wouldn't have told them in the past.
2: It's, it's so true. And I, again, when I work with clients, you know, often have the occasion to tell them, you know, um, I can say things to you that you would not hear from your employees because I'm not your employee, right? You signed a contract, here are the ways that you can fire me as a consultant. So if you don't like it, that I'm gonna tell you the truth about something, then that's actually not a fireable offense. But you know, there's there's ways to end the contract, but I don't have any fear of you being offended by what I'm gonna tell you, right? So if I come in and I find out that you're on your third acquisition and you have botched the first two, right? Then we're gonna have a conversation about how to make the third one go better, right? And if that's hard for you, then you may need to look at that from a leadership perspective, right? And, and I wanna help you build those skills too. And any good you know, consultant that you work with will want to help you with that as well, right? So that's part of our job as somebody who comes in as a third party. I'm not really neutral, actually. I want you to succeed, which means that I'm gonna look for the things that are failing, right? And that means I might actually say something that's a little painful to hear, right?
0: right but but all in the trying to make things successful and and that's what everyone wants i mean even if we've made some missteps it, it probably wasn't because we tried to it was just we really weren't aware or there were circumstances beyond our control or you know we just sort of let things happen because another priority up jumped up so right. there's all that stuff happens but so i'm going to be there's a there's a lot to this process um again I don't know what percentage, but probably a pretty high percentage of people would say, oh, onboarding. That's right. Orientation. So it kind of gets back to the, you know, the day one orientation. We're going to have a whole hour long podcast talking about that. But you can see it's so much richer and more complex and so much more powerful in terms of bottom line and organization and cultural impact. So there's a lot here, but I want to be sensitive to your time. And maybe there's, you know, more episodes in this, but as we close, is there anything that we didn't talk about that you would like to share or add?
2: You know, yeah, I want to leave listeners with um, something that they can actually go and use right now. um, Because I know that we've been, you know, we've been talking for a while about how complex these things are, but also the value of them. And and how it uh, you know it being onboarding how onboarding really will help your business on a number of different levels but it can feel overwhelming to get started right especially if you're busy and you know business is good that's that's fabulous for you but it means that you're busy likely so what i would like to offer your listeners basically is think about the next new hire that's coming in and what are maybe what are what are like 10 things that you can do differently out of the 100 things that you do now What are five to 10 different things that you could do a little bit differently that you could tweak just a little bit, right? Could that be sending them a welcome email that's a little bit more um, upfront about what they can expect, right? Um, Could you, um, you know, have your managers give them a phone call ahead of time, right? To help them know, you know, what, what they need to know for the first week of their job, right? Could you write objectives for their first 90 days? What are the top three things you want them to be Um, you know, accountable for in their first 90 days, right? So if you think about it in these small little chunks, you are gonna start building your onboarding program slowly. The other thing that I want um, listeners to take away is that with that new hire and maybe the five to 10 different things that you do with them, those improvements that you make, I want you to also ask them intentionally, help me build a better onboarding program for you, right? As as your manager, how can I do a better job, right? So give them the permission and the air cover to offer critique, right? Constructive critique. And then also ask them to document anything that they see that's confusing, right? Say, keep a running list of all the stuff that's really confusing to you, or when you're in a meeting and you didn't understand that acronym or the way that we produce this document is way different than how you did it at the last company, make a note of that and let's talk about that in our one-on-one and then we'll figure out what are some of those process and technical and tooling and all of those four categories. That stuff is gonna start to go into those four categories and it's gonna be a lot easier than it sounds when I tell you there are four categories and you need to put all the information into those categories
0: well that that's that's great advice and, and thank you so much for sharing that how how can folks learn more about you and what you're doing at edify
2: That's a great question thank you um, so I am working on a book right now so in the coming hopefully year um, a book on technical onboarding will come out um, and so that is a way that you can learn more in the interim um, you can shoot me an email at kristen at if you have any questions you more than welcome to to shoot me an email with questions. Um, and then you can always learn more about edify at edifyedu.com.
0: Great. Well thank you so much for coming um, onto the podcast and sharing you know, all that you have on onboarding and really kind of the, the medicine and the applesauce with organizational development and what leaders need to know and do to make their, their growth more successful. Because whether it's M&A or if it's hiring individuals, it's all about growth. And we want to be able to grow and sustain that and be more effective and for all the good reasons that we, we want growth in the first place.
2: Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it.
0: All right. Well, thank you again and take care. Well, that's a wrap. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to and rate this podcast on iTunes or whatever platform you listen to the show from. There are links on my website and in the show notes to do so. And please share this podcast with your friends and colleagues. It really helps to get us established. And I truly appreciate that. It also helps get the word out so that together we can collectively grow and positively impact the lives of others both inside and beyond our organizations. So thank you.
1: for joining us on today's episode of AEC Leadership Today. If you want to stay relevant and effective and take your growth and prosperity to new levels, it's time to take action. To learn more about how Pete can help take you and your firm to the next level, visit www.actionsproved.com. That's www.actionsproved.com. See you next time on the AEC Leadership Today podcast.